This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Yes, hello. This is David Lynch, writer and director of such films as Eraserhead, Blue Velvet, and Mulholland Drive as well as one of the co-creators of Twin Peaks. You are about to witness a front three-quarter view of Music of the Mats 2019 Halloween Spooktacular. It will be a discussion on some of the scariest, spookiest, and creepiest entrance themes in pro wrestling history. A fair bit of warning, some of these themes you're about to hear are scarier than the reviews of Twin Peaks Season 2. Do I have to say that line? Yeah, David, you do. I mean, I wasn't even part of the show for most of that season. David, do you want your 50 bucks or not? Say the lines, please. Okay, fine. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the Halloween spooktacular. To get you in the mood, here's an excerpt from the new song by the band Ghost. Off their EP, Seven Inches of Satanic Panic. It's called Kiss the Go-Goat. And it's filled with lyrics about Satan and black magic and other dark mischief appropriate for the season. So enjoy the show and remember, fix your hearts or die. That's a rather aggressive ending, don't you think? It's your line from the show, David. I know it's my line. I wrote the goddamn thing. Can I get paid now? Welcome to Music of the Mat, the podcast devoted exclusively to the music of pro wrestling. It's all part of the Voices of Wrestling podcast network. I'm your host, Andrew Rich. This is episode 71, and it's the 2019 Halloween Spooktacular. And joining me today is a returning guest here on the show. It's former VOW writer Sean Flynn. Hello, Sean. 
Hello. Thank you for having me for this spooky episode. <laughs> Getting into the uh, spirit already, I see. I, I was hoping that you might do like a kind of like the uh, DDT heavy metal weight title that had like 500 title changes in one night. I was hoping that you could do like a whole bunch of mini episodes to get this up to episode 666. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. But a missed opportunity, I suppose. Right. Next year. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, maybe. I'll uh, I'll try to uh, up my productivity by about uh, 4,000% or so. <laughs> a whole lot of five second episodes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. dan 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 Here's a song. I like it. Bye. <laughs> well, uh, anyway, Sean, uh, the last time you were on here, uh, it was the Cody Rhodes episode back in December. And it's funny, looking back on it, we were both like, oh, there's rumors of some sort about Cody having his own promotion, maybe. And fast forward to today, and not only is that promotion real, but it's on TNT in primetime. It's got hot crowds and nice arenas. And they're beating WWE in the ratings. I mean, it's amazing to see all this stuff happen in relatively short order there, Sean. We, we were prescient. We, we recognized that by this time next year, Cody was going to be probably the second, maybe third most important person in wrestling in America. Yeah, it's incredible to see his rise. I, yeah. And not only is he at this like super high level, but he's also mega over as well. You know, he's like the biggest face in the company incredibly over i was at the uh i was at their last the last pay-per-view they did in chicago labor day weekend and it was it was like austin in his prime when cody walked out you just that entire crowd was just so happy to be there to cheer for him and to see him and to just be in part in that movement with him i i never ever would have imagined that it i didn't think it would have this kind of staying power but I had to be wrong because it's been a hell of a hell of a show so far. Yeah, going from yeah, I'm priceless to <laughs> where he is today is uh, quite a big leap there for sure. <laughs> yeah. We, and I said, we all laughed when he put out that picture of the list. That's of right. The you yeah. wanted to do on the indies, and turns out even he was underselling what he was going to end up doing. Incredible, yeah. So, uh, in any event, uh, today's episode here, Sean, is indeed the Halloween Spooktacular where we will be talking about five spooky, scary, creepy wrestling themes that are appropriate for the Halloween season. And, Sean, before we get into the themes here, um, I'll ask you this. Do you enjoy Halloween? Do you get into the spirit of it at all? I do. I, I, we, me and my wife just had a big Halloween party. We, we actually were graced by the presence of Rich from VOW. And we, we were doing pumpkin carving and fire pits and all the Halloween activities. I Every year, I'd usually try to put in some effort. We've put in some effort into costumes over the years. I, I tend to go all out for it. How about you? Uh, yeah, I, I mentioned on the show before that I went trick-or-treating a lot as a kid. And even though I stopped when I got older, uh, when I was a teenager, I still enjoy the season and I enjoy the decorations and uh, the scary movies and just the feel of it all, you know? I'm excited. This is the first time in 20 plus years that I'll be spending Halloween. I actually have a house and am expecting <laughs> trick-or-treaters and debating whether or not to be the house that gives away the really good candy or to be the house that gives away toothbrushes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I remember when I was a teenager after I stopped going trick-or-treating, I, I'd be at home watching TV and the doorbell would ring and ring and ring and I'd be like, oh, these damn kids, I'm trying to watch TV for crying out loud. Come on. <laughs> 
Uh, we're, we're excited this year. I'm sure by next year we'll have the lights down and yeah. uh, <laughs> sign that says no one home, please go away. But for this year, we're, we're, we're all set to be the, the, hey, look at your cute costumes. Yeah, flash forward to two years from now and you're like, we're watching wrestling, go away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, once, once it hits seven o'clock, the door gets closed and uh, that's, the end of the, that's the end of the night. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Now, uh, now, as far as wrestling goes, is there like a particular wrestler or moment in wrestling that scared you when you were younger or creeped you out? I don't mean like an injury, you know, or, or an accident in the ring, but yeah. more like a, a storyline or a character moment, perhaps. Oh, man. I think the scariest thing ever that I saw was probably Abdullah the Butcher when he was in, like, world class back in the mid-'80s. I was 8, 9, 10 years old. And that was the first time that I saw, like, true gory deathmatch. Like, oh, my God, this is insanely violent. And that that was the kind of thing that just haunts your nightmares for a while, seeing this mountain of a man stabbing another guy with a fork the big divots in his head and he's all yeah. covered in blood yeah i mean jesus i, I mean nowadays you know that seems pretty tame because we've oh, yeah. seen death matches we've seen ecw we've seen countless plunder matches over the years but back then if you're a kid and you've never seen abdul the butcher or the bruiser brody or some other legendary brawler having this fight with all this, you know, blood and guts in there. Yeah, that's going to fuck you up a little bit, I think. <laughs> yeah, the pictures of, like, Abdullah and Carlos Colon in the old PWI and the after mags with just rivers of blood everywhere. It, <laughs> it was it was shocking because you don't – I mean, you grew up seeing WWF, Hulk Hogan. There was blood, but it was never a scary sort of blood. This was – not to belabor his name, but that was butchery happening there. <laughs> and yeah, that was that was my first exposure to real terrifying, scary wrestling. And until the nineties, and then of course we got everyone got to trade for the deathmatch tapes and see Mick Foley blowing things up in Japan. <laughs> but but yeah, Abdullah still I even though he's like eighty years old, I'd be scared I'd be scared shitless if Abdullah was here right now with a fork. <laughs> yeah, and uh, then you grew up and started reviewing Raw for VOW, and uh, that's when you got the really scary wrestling, didn't you? <laughs> that's, that's where you see the – that's when you stare into the abyss so long that the abyss begins to stare back. <laughs> I'm sure those terrifying visions you had to witness, they've haunted your dreams ever since there, haven't they, Sean? <laughs> I, I still have memories of corporate Kane running things for months and months and – Deep breath. It's okay. They can't make me do it anymore. They can't make me do it anymore. Tossing and turning in bed. No, no. Get away from me, right back. So get away. No. Your wife is like, it's okay, honey. The Ascension are gone. They can't hurt you anymore. <laughs> to be fair, the Ascension never really hurt anyone. <laughs> they tried, though. <laughs> All right, let's get to these themes here. Uh, starting off in the good old WWF in 1997 where the biggest storyline at the time was the Hart Foundation versus America feud. And the Hart Foundation was, of course, Bret Hart and Owen Hart and the British Bulldog and Jim Neidhart. But the guy we're going to focus on here is the loose cannon Brian Pillman, who during the mid-90s was a, a very colorful character in wrestling, to say the least. Uh, his theme song is, of course, by Jim Johnston off of WWE Uncaged 2. This is... Ticking time bomb. Help 
no TV and no beer make Pillman something something. <laughs> Go crazy? Don't mind if I do! <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, true to the loose cannon gimmick, where Pillman did his best to act as erratic and as unhinged as possible, his theme song does the same thing. Uh, this might be the most erratic, unhinged theme of all time, simply because of the fact that it is overloaded with, like, every cliché, psycho wrestling theme trope in there. The thumping heartbeat percussion, the creepy menacing whisper, Pillman, the manic staccato piano playing, <laughs> the high-pitched strings in there that are in, like, every horror movie, the piercing cymbal crashes, the crazy guy yelling in the background. It is trying as hard as possible to be the quintessential maniac wrestler theme song and i'd say it does a pretty good job of that sean it does it's interesting because it's the first time that i first off i didn't even remember this theme song i when when i listened to this i it it was completely new to me but while going through and it it struck me because there's all the parts that are crazy and ooh, here's a crazy person theme but then it tries to do the go gentle a little bit and then go back to crazy and then gentle. And it's the first and last time that I've ever found myself thinking, Hmm, this wrestling theme sounds like Bruce Hornsby may have been involved. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit of Al Jarreau, perhaps. I just kept wanting to go. That's just the way it is. (laughs) And then it would go back into, Ooh, spooky psycho theme. But yeah, I almost felt like it was trying a little too hard. And especially because Brian Pillman was terrifying because he was just nuts, but not because he was nuts in like a horror movie villain sort of way. I mean, he he was nuts because he might just shoot you. <laughs> <laughs> and this this was a good scary theme for an unhinged crazy person. I'm just not sure it was the right theme for this unhinged crazy person. Yeah. I had a different thought about that. Uh, you mentioned that smooth jazz interlude in there with uh, the nice piano and the keyboard sax, and it gets all mellow and it lasts for like 10 seconds and then bam, right back to the crazy music. I like that because it helps get across the idea of the loose cannon gimmick, you know, because a loose cannon isn't acting crazy 24-7. A loose cannon is someone who can appear fine at certain moments, but all of a sudden something will set them off and they'll just go off the rails. That's why the song is called Ticking Time Bomb, you know, because you're just waiting for them to go off. And in this song, you're hearing this chaotic, scary music for most of the time, and then you'll get this nice smooth jazz and it's a respite from the madness. But before you get too comfortable with it, oh. Back to the craziness. It's all very nerve-wracking and tense, which, again, was the point of the gimmick there, Sean. True, but I mean, I feel like at that point, Pillman, there was never a time of and calm that's true. with him. Yeah, sure. Literally every time that he was on TV the last two, three years of his life, it just felt like chaos was happening constantly around him. Even when he was standing still, he was so unhinged looking that it felt like things were happening. He, I, I guess I kind of, it's funny because you think about it, WWF, they had like three or four different characters that did that sort of 
scary, calm, scary, calm thing at the time. I mean, they were doing the same sort of thing with the McFoley and Mankind around then with the really with the two different entrance and exit music and the really slow piano. And they had had Waylon Mercy about a, two years or so ago, probably at that point doing the I'm really friendly and then I get in the ring and I'm a crazy man. So I, I almost feel like it would have been better for someone like that who really does seem to have a split personality, whereas Pillman at that point was pretty much just nuts 24-7. But on the other hand, I like the theme. I just, like I said, I just when I heard it, if I hadn't seen that it was Brian Pillman, I never in a million years would have tied it to him because he just never struck me as calm at that point. There was never that... He, he was never Bruce Hornsby. He was always the terrifying... He was always the range. <laughs> <laughs> uh, only thing that I also thought with this, and I, I mentioned this because I'm, I'm going to come back to it later on uh, when it comes to one of the later themes we talk about. This really sounded, to me at least, kind of amateurish for WWE, WWF themes. It It just... It sounded like so, like someone had put it together using like really cheap equipment and really cheap mixing, and I was surprised because normally WWE WWF their production is immaculate for everything, and I don't know if maybe that was intentional given the character and the the sort of the vibe of the music, or if it was just we need to get a new theme for Brian Pillman by next Friday. But yeah, it just struck me odd for them. Yeah, I guess you bring up the haphazardness of it. I can probably picture Brian there in the studio being like, come on, let's go. Get the song ready. Come on. And, and Jim Johnston's like, all right, calm down, Brian. I'll do it. I'll do it. Just, I'll do it myself. Come on, goddammit. Let's go. He's just hitting random buttons on the mixing board. Yeah, I can picture that for sure. It, it, that that would be that would have been a behind-the-scene video that I would have liked to see. <laughs> Pillman just, make it faster. Hit this. Hit this. <laughs> Uh, of course, the saddest part was thinking it was the dates that he used this song, and it took me a few minutes. It's like, he used this from June 97 to October 97. Why did he stop? Y- oh, no. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> so uh, for those that maybe don't know about this, uh, rest in peace, Brian Pillman. Uh, he died in 1997 of a heart attack. The David pay-per-view, Bad Blood. He was supposed to wrestle Dude Love on the show, and they found him dead in his hotel room of a heart attack. And it just sucks really badly because Brian Pillman was a hell of a wrestler, hell of a performer, and he had a very interesting career full of twists and turns. He started out as this you know, great athlete and great natural talent. He had the iconic match against Liger at Super Brawl 2 that really put cruiserweight wrestling on the map in America. He was in the Hollywood Blondes tag team with Steve Austin as well. And then he gets the loose cannon gimmick, which really boosts his notoriety, and it looks like he's going to go to the next level there. Unfortunately, he gets into a pretty bad car accident in 96, and the doctors had to fuse his ankle just so he could walk. So he had to change up his whole style in the ring and be more methodical and be more character-based, and he was part of that big Heart Foundation versus America feud. And then he dies of a heart attack at 35 years old. And you do sort of wonder what else Brian could have done if he had stayed alive, especially in that time period, because that was 97 WWF when the company was in the early stages of the Attitude Era. 
Imagine what Brian could have done in full-on 98-99 WWF Attitude Era where things just went so edgy and so over-the-top crazy. You do wonder where his career would have gone, Sean. Oh, yeah. I mean, Brian Pillman is someone who is extremely underrated in terms of how much he caused the industry and a certain group of the fan base to really grow along and to grow up with him. Like you said, first being the first real cruiserweight to be exposed in America along with Liger. I I think that's really your first impetus that pushes, pushes the door open for the rest of the smaller wrestlers, the, who come through the Rays, the Eddie Guerreros, all of the luchadors. And then the, the work he does in ECW going to going to WWF, even his end work, the work he was doing in WCW when he was released, he got the line between work and shoot and how to blur that line better than I think anyone has since. Because he was able to keep doing it over and over and over again. Some guys, they might get one angle where it's like, oh, you don't know. Is this really supposed to be happening? Pillman literally spent two years living right on that borderline. And I think he's one of those people who, if you weren't around for it, if you weren't there for him in the ECW arena threatening to whip it out and piss all over the ring, or if you weren't there for the Austin Pillman gun incident, it, he kind of can get lost in the history of, of the 90s when there were so many bigger things that happened afterwards. But Brian Pillman, to me, is one of the most important people to come out of that decade. And I think that his, I think his legacy is one that is due for some re- revisiting by people these days. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the time period, especially 95, 96, that is still pre-attitude era WWF and in WCW even that's like still red and yellow Hulkamania you know (laughs) with the Dungeon of Doom and the Zodiac and all those guys so I mean there's ECW sure but as far as the two biggest companies go Brian was as edgy as they come I mean you know doing stuff like grabbing Bobby Heenan by the neck and Heenan freaking out and go what the fuck are you doing he made Bobby Heenan say fuck <laughs> on a live broadcast. Uh, he goes to ECW and drops an N-bomb in a promo against New Jack, of all people. <laughs> my favorite one, though, my absolute favorite one, was when he got fired by WCW for saying to Kevin Nash on air, I respect you, Booker Man. <laughs> you know, effectively breaking kayfabe and telling people on air that Kevin Sullivan was the Booker for WCW. So and they just fired, walked out of the match. And after he walked that. right out too, walked right out of the match, and they fired him. And according to Bischoff, him and Brian came up with this plan where Bischoff would fire Brian for real, Brian would go to ECW to build up his reputation as this loose cannon, and then Brian would come back to WCW, and he would be a bigger star there. Well, Brian doesn't go back. <laughs> he goes to WWF, and to me, anyone who clowns Eric Bischoff like that and makes him look like a total putz, he gets an A-plus in my book there, Sean. I, I love that the way I've heard it always told is that Pillman convinced Bischoff that, you know, if you actually give me a release, it'll make it seem even more legit and the, the dirt sheet writers will buy it and then it'll be a really good angle. And <laughs> so 
Bischoff gives him the release. I, I tend to never believe Eric Bischoff on anything where he says that he knew what was going on or that it was his idea. So I'm, I'm going to I'm going to buy the version of the story that he completely just fools Bischoff into saying, sure, here, have a release. But you're going to come back, right? Of course. No problem. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I hope that I hope that people get a chance to go back and look at some of Pillman's stuff and try to view it in nineties in, in the eyes of someone in the nineties. Cause that, that moment when he says, I respect you, Booker, man, I wonder how many people went to America online or prodigy to figure find out what's a Booker man. There's Booker T, but that can't be it. <laughs> <laughs> the Kevin Sullivan doesn't look anything like him. Yeah. <laughs> He's not from Harlem. What's going on here? <laughs> He's too short. <laughs> So uh, rest in peace, Brian Pillman. You are definitely missed in this uh, day and age. That's for sure. Damn right. Going to move on now to TNA Wrestling. And on last year's Spooktacular with Garrett Kidney, we covered the theme song for Tara, who was a big part of the Knockouts division for many years. And this year, we're going to talk about another important TNA knockout, uh, someone who was a staple of that division when it started in 2007, Awesome Kong a former Knockouts champion who is now part of AEW. And Kong's theme in TNA is, of course, by Dale Oliver. Off of the album Rock On, this is Empire March. Pillman's theme was clearly going for the manic, psychopathic overtones. This one is definitely going for the monster overtones, because Awesome Kong may not have the promo skills of a Brian Pillman, but what she does have is size and strength. That is her bread and butter. That's what made her career, you know, being a monster, being this unstoppable force who could just brutalize pretty much any other woman on the roster, um, and most of the men as well because she was just bigger and meaner than all of them. And credit to Dale Oliver, because he made a theme here that emphasizes that so much, with the big stomps at the beginning. Boom. Boom. And the horn section. It lets you know right away that Awesome Kong is a very foreboding and powerful presence, Sean. Awesome Kong was involved in a match that changed my fandom of wrestling completely and actually it was the day before apparently judging by from the dates of this the day before she started using this theme in tna i saw awesome kong in october of 2007 in the shimmer volume 15 main event in berwin i'd, I'd gone to the show just because i was bored and had nothing better to do and it was local to me 
And that main event, she was against Sarah Del Rey, now Sarah Amato of the WWE Performance Center. And it was the first time that I'd ever seen a female wrestling hoss fight, just an absolute beating back and forth of two monsters just beating the crap out of each other. And that was really the moment where I was like, okay, this whole women's wrestling thing could have a future somewhere. And since then I've been to 85 or so 95 or so shimmer volumes. And it's driven me for the la- over a decade to sort of get very interested in women's wrestling, Joshi, et cetera, et cetera. And that's so much because of just the unfathomable presence of awesome Kong. She, that music fits her like a glove because she is, they always used to talk about Andre the Giant being someone you had to see in person or the big show. You have to come see him live. You can't imagine what it's like. Kong is that, or was that in her prime. The mix of size, strength, intimidation, and that music just boom, boom. If anything, the only thing I wish them that they had had was even more percussion and more powerful drum in this theme. Because I just wanted to like feel it in my chest, every like imagining every step, the whole room vibrating, like when Godzilla's coming, coming off the shore and about to come visit Tokyo. But yeah, perfect, perfect theme for this. Yeah, what's cool about it is that it does have this old school movie monster feel to it, which is true to the Kong name, of course, especially with that horn section in there. You know the dun 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 gives it this majestic classic sound, like you're witnessing this larger than life spectacle. But you also have that rock instrumentation in there and that sort of, I don't know, corrupted keyboard, I guess you could say, that that gives it this modern flavoring, uh, very much presenting Awesome Kong as this old-school wrestling monster who was part of the modern wrestling scene, Sean. Exactly. I mean, that I like that contrast because, especially using Beethoven's Fifth, that's a piece that's always going to be right on the edge of parody to begin with, but... By using that, by combining it with that modern sound, it not only kind of rescues you from, it gives it a freshness that otherwise is, okay, the other 5,000 times I've heard that, dun, 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 you're not instantly jumping to all sorts of other media and you're not jumping to, well, I thought saw it in this movie or on this TV show or this commercial. And it does, get, Kong really was that fusion between the old school monster but she wasn't just some big person who stands in the ring and like does hair tosses and she wasn't like when they portrayed bertha fay in wwf or any other like terrifying like big woman she was a wrestler she was agile she was able to move she was able to work a modern style and that that fusion of the old school territory monster heel who's an attraction, who's something you wouldn't see every day, but fused with being able to work that fast paced modern knockout style is was so much of the appeal and what made her such an icon in that 
early days of the knockouts division and gave that her feud with Gail Kim such imp such don't want to say impact because that's just hokey <laughs> such made them so compelling. Yeah, I think I read once that at the time those Gail Kim Awesome Kong segments got the highest ratings on Impact whenever they were on, and the feud itself was pretty great in the ring too. Yeah, they were great matches, and they showed that a male audience could be entertained and become invested in a women's division in a way that no company in America had really done at that point on any sort of national level. So, I mean, and the music presentation there was part of it. She, I I mean, even now she's physically not even remotely close to what she was back then. But the image that they created for her in TNA back in those early years, it still has legs and it still has the ability to sort of give her that aura and to give her some extra oomph whenever she appears on TV. And I think that's part, that's credit to the whole presentation that they that they created for her. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, as I said, she's in AEW right now. And you're right, in 2019, her injuries and her age, they have caught up to her. And she's not what she once was in her prime. But I think she can still be a very good veteran hand as a coach and help out a lot of the women on that roster. Oh, absolutely. And she can still, she knows how to work. It's not like she's, I mean, we're not talking about like watching Tomayaka Hanma or something here. <laughs> I mean, she's still able to work a match she's not doing things that she was doing 15 years ago but i mean on the other hand 15 years ago i could get up in the morning without making 14 different sounds of pain so (laughs) who am i to say anything (laughs) yeah um she's also a really good actress too uh, on glow on netflix she's great on that show oh she's awesome no no pun intended hey come on now the the puns are my gig come on I, I, I always had trouble because when she works the indie circuit, she would be amazing Kong. And when she was on TNA, she'd be awesome Kong. And it's kind of like how, you know, if you're trying to put your shirt on in the dark, even though it's 50-50 that you'll have it on like backwards or, or the right way, you'll always have it backwards. It was 100% no matter what group she was in, I'd use the wrong term. Every time. Guaranteed. Even if I tried to go the other way and do the Costanza and say, I'm not going to say what I think it is. <laughs> I'd somehow double back and still confuse myself. I'll have tuna on toast. No, I always have tuna on toast. I'll have awesome Kong on rye. In AIW. <laughs> Hello, my name is George. I'm unemployed and I watch awesome Kong on impact. <laughs> I live with my mother. Oh boy. Oh boy. All right, let's move on now to theme number three. And uh, Sean, let's take a little trip here to a magical place in time in wrestling history filled with hope and wonder and zombies and Matt Stryker and an oily fat guy jerking off the Sandman Singapore cane. I'm talking about the ECW reboot on sci-fi, baby. And uh, if you're going to do an ECW show on sci-fi, you got to have a vampire, right? Well, it's course. only common sense. And in 2006, the world was introduced to the next generation of wrestling vampires, Kevin Thorne. And Thorne's theme is not by Jim Johnston, but rather a guy named Chris Jones from the Video Helper Music Library. This is called 
Meet Destrojero. Destrojero, uh, Spanish for my destroyer. Kevin Thorne himself, not a man of Spanish descent, I don't think, but uh, what he is is a vampire. And with vampires, you need some spooky music. Gangrel, an obvious example, his music was awesome, had a great groove to it, a great bounce, but it was also spooky. This song, there's a punchiness to it, it's got this nice electronica mix, got a good pace to it as well. But it's also spooky, because it's got the spooky chanting in there. So as far as wrestling vampire themes go, I'd say it does a pretty satisfactory job there, Sean. I was very confused for quite a while why the theme song was using Spanish language and couldn't really... I thought, well, Shelly Martinez, who's his valet, she's Latina, maybe... the. But that 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 confused me for a while. It's it's hard to be a wrestling vampire in the 2000s because you're living up to the epitome of the gimmick. No one ever did or ever will do it as well as Gangrel. And Gangrel had the most perfect music possible for a wrestling vampire. You could say he might have had the most perfect music possible, period. But that's a different show. So it was difficult to not compare the two because this is a nice, solid, spooky theme. It, it, it gives you that there's a gothic sort of vibe to it. That The chanting puts you in the mindset of something a little spooky, a little bit of fog in the graveyard at night. But then I just keep thinking, I wish this was Gangrel's music. <laughs> I wish this, much like when Kevin Thorne was on TV and I would think, I wish this was Gangrel. Well, originally there was supposed to be a vampire stable with Thorne, Ariel, and Gangrel. I don't know if you knew that, Sean. I didn't, and now I'm very sad that it never came to fruition. Uh, uh, finally, we have something to be unhappy about with the ECW reboot. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, with Kevin Thorne, I think they're going for a specific type of vampire motif because he had the fangs and the blood and all that but he wasn't Dracula with the cape and he wasn't like a Lestat-esque vampire like Gangrel was with the puppy shirt you know I don't want to be a vampire but uh <laughs> he uh was a low talker who got him to wear that shirt I think <laughs> he was more of like a, I guess a modern voodoo dark arts vampire because he had the waistcoat and the cane and the vest and the red tie and Ariel had the tarot cards and 
There was the red lighting behind them during their entrances. Sort of like a rejected Blade villain of sorts, you know, or, or True Blood. And the music goes along with that. This music isn't your stereotypical classic vampire music, you know. It's a modern sound with the electronica and the gothic chanting. It, it does have those satanic dark arts connotations to it. So is it on par with Gangrel's theme? Of course not. That's an all-timer. But in terms of matching up Kevin Thorne's look and vibe with the music, I think they picked the right song, Sean. Well, they did. They did. And it makes me think that I think we're about due for a new wrestling vampire. And I'm, I'm hoping that we can get maybe something based off of uh, what we do in the shadows. I don't know if you've watched that show. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. I, 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 I'm hoping we can get maybe a comedy vampire at this point. I, I would I would like to see one based on sort of Matt Berry's character. Mm, bats. I, I, and he flies away. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, I, I mean, it's been what? It's been 12 years since we've had a good wrestling vampire. AEW needs one. But yeah, I like this song for the one thing I will say is WWE themes, no matter who they're by. They go on a long time. That was the thing. That was something I noticed as I was listening to these. All the themes that were non WWE, WWF, they get in and out two minutes, two fifteen or so. They don't wear their welcome out. This one went five minutes, and it was surprising to me because you don't think about a wrestling theme going that long. And then I'm thinking, does this mean that at some point they were thinking that Kevin Thorne might have a five-minute long entrance? Well, it's not written as an in-house WWE theme, though. It's stock music. You know, true, it's not true. It's not being crafted for a wrestling environment. It's being crafted for some, I don't know, C-level horror movie or something like that. Uh, true. Very good point. Didn't think about that. I wonder if something like for a character like a Kevin Thorne, if it wouldn't have been helped with something a little i almost wonder if it, it wouldn't have helped if they'd gone a little more stereotypically vampire-y with something like this i mean because it just never i didn't i mean i wasn't watching constantly at this point but i remember the character just not making much of an impression and it almost i almost wonder if they might have overthought themselves a bit by not going quite as traditionally vampire-y in the presentation. Well, I think there's kind of a pattern when it comes to not properly presenting the character all that well, because I looked up the clip when he debuted, and I was a bit taken aback by this. I forgot he didn't have a name when he debuted. He was just referred to as a vampire. And this was like after weeks of vignettes hyping him up, too. He didn't have a name! They called him Kevin Thorne the week after, but that first week he was just known as the vampire. And not only that... But he didn't even get to do an entrance for his debut. He was already in the ring when they cut to him. And Taz was like, hey, we got a vampire in the ring there, Joey. First time ever, we got a vampire in ECW. <laughs> Maybe that was the problem. It's a vampire named Kevin. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 he might have survived if they just called him Thorn. But, but yeah, it's like you're a vampire named Kevin and your music is not, I mean, it's spooky, but it's not really screaming vampire. Sometimes you really just need to dispense with the su- and just completely ignore the subtlety and just go, here's a vampire. Let's have some music that goes, bleh. <laughs> I've answered the blood. 
because if I'm if I'm gonna be if I'm gonna have a wrestling vampire, I really need it to be very very vampire-y. And this entire conversation just makes me think that there are generations of wrestling fans who weren't there for ECW on Sci-Fi and will never truly understand the idea of the wrestling zombie or of the wrestling vampire. Well, if you want your wrestling vampires to be extra vampire-y, should they only wrestle in dark matches? Come on! There we fucking go. Who's the king of this shit right here? Oh my god. I... Ow. Ow. That hurts my life. (laughs) And yet I'm so happy all at once. I do what I can to please people. That's what I do. That's what I'm here for. I'm, I'm so ashamed. I'm so ashamed at how much it entertained me. <laughs> well, let's move on now to the next theme here. And we're going to take a little bit of a detour away from the major companies like WWE and TNA and put some focus on the indie scene, uh, specifically from a little promotion called Chikara. And when it comes to Halloween and Chikara, there's a very obvious wrestler you can talk about in that regard. Mr. And Touchdown? It, Oh, you ruined the reveal, Sean. Come on, man. Come on. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's Ultimo Breakfast. That's who it is, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's the guy who has Hallow in his name, for crying out loud. I'm talking about Hallow Wicked, who is one of the original Chikara trainees who debuted on the very first show back in 2002, and he's been a stalwart of that company ever since. And his theme song, along with his Nightmare Warriors partner, Frightmare, is off of the album Chikara Themes Volume 4. It's by Josh Jones featuring Ian Vaflor. It's called Never Wake Up. So this is a curious sort of song. Uh, it starts off with that low, droning guitar strum that is persistent all throughout the song. Really sets the tone for it being a sinister, dreadful type of song. And then as it goes on, you get little bits added in that add to the dread. And you've got the deep bass drum, you've got the finger cymbals, the oh, ah, chanting, and this rapid percussion slowly fades in as we hear the screaming and it just devolves into this really frantic song that isn't really pleasant to listen to at all and considering Hallow Wicked and Frightmare are darker characters it makes sense to give them an unpleasant sounding theme. Um, I do have some questions about the connotations of the song and the way it sounds in relation to their characters but 
What about you, Sean? What do you think of this song? First, I got to say, I was impressed by how good it sounded. Kind of the antithesis of what I was saying about the Brian Pillman theme. This sounded like it could have fit in in any sort of major, like it could be a, it could have been a WWE theme in terms of production and it wouldn't have sounded out of place at all. So, I mean, I, when I saw that it was going to be an indie theme, I was expecting something, especially if it was an original theme for someone on an indie circuit. I was like, I wonder what I'm about to get into here. And I was extremely impressed with how good the whole thing sounded and how professional it sounded. That said, it was scary and it had tension in it, which I really liked. But there was something incongruous because the, the way it sounded as it built up with more of the ah, and the sound and as the percussion comes in more, it almost had a sound similar to like in older movies when they would do something set in, quote, deepest, darkest Africa. Yes, I was going to bring that up. Yeah. And the only thing, though, is. It added to the scariness because it reminded me of, I think, one. I think the scariest Twilight Zone episode ever is one called The Jungle, I believe. Twilight Zone episode with a lion. Yes, it's just called The Jungle, and I don't know if you've ever. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Um, not that one. I don't think I've seen a bunch of them, but not that one. It's extremely goofy and stupid and kind of uncomfortable to watch with 2019 eyes and morality, but it does great in terms of atmosphere and mood and just making you as the viewer feel like there, this, there's a guy and he's going through and he keeps hearing jungle noises everywhere. Cause he thinks he's been cursed by a witch doctor or something incredibly 50s and 60s sounding like that and they just keep doing these jungle noises and the sounds that would be in that sort of a movie and tv show at the time and when i was listening to this it put me into that weird claustrophobic mindset of a dark city with all these noises coming around me and being out in the being out at night and not being able to see anything more than your hand in front of your face and that was that was impressive for me with this that it really has a sort of claustrophobic closed-in feel to this song. Yeah, you bring up what is my biggest confusion about this song is that, yeah, it's very tribal, and it does conjure up these images of witch doctors and blood sacrifices and ancient ritual dances in the jungles of some faraway land. And Halloween and Frightmare, they don't have a tribal gimmick. Their gimmick is spooky, and it's centered on the underworld and ghosts and dark spirits, but it's Halloween-based, you know, Hallowicked Halloween. It's right there. Um, he wears a jack-o'-lantern-inspired mask. He has moves called the Graveyard Smash and Go to Sleepy Hollow. Uh, Frightmare has the stitched-up mask, and one of their tag moves is called the Headless Horseman. They spent years associated with Ultramantis Black in the Spectral Envoy stable. So I get that they're going for a dark song with these two, but I'm a little confused as to why they went in that direction, Sean. Fair enough. I honestly have never actually seen them do their entrance or anything of that nature. I've I've seen some Chikara, but I've never really seen anything that had them involved. 
But it's interesting to think, I feel like with some of these entrance themes, I want them to be more tied to the character because they're really part of a presentation and part of a single unified package. But then sometimes I'm okay with the idea that the music isn't quite as appropriate, for lack of a better term, but simply trying to set a general mood. And I feel like in a case like this, maybe that's okay. Because if you went too Halloween-y, I think you would be in danger of making it too hokey. I mean, if you if you did bust it, if you busted out something that sounded like Takata and Fugue, or if you had something very more traditionally themed around the holiday, I think that kind of makes it. It's hard to not to do that, I think, and not have it end up being almost like like turning it into a kids sort of thing. Well, Chikara is a pretty kid friendly and hokey promotion in a lot of ways. To be fair, you know. True. But I mean, that seems like they're not what they're going for with these two. If they are, then obvious, then that would be a different story. True, true, yeah. Um, I guess I'm also a little confused by it because before Chikara started using all those in-house themes, they used a lot of mainstream songs. And Halloween and Frightmare in particular, they came out to like Cradle of Filth and <laughs> White Zombie and Laybok, you know, these super metal bands that are just the polar opposite of ancient tribal music. So it's a big left turn from what they used to come out to there. Yeah, uh, again, I mean, we're seeing the difference in context as well. For me, it's like, I don't really, I'm not terribly familiar with the gimmick, so I could see it as just sort of mood. But if they've had something that seemed so much more appropriate, then yeah, that would be, I can see where that would be like, wait a minute, what the hell? It would almost seem like it would her- herald a gimmick change at that point. And then and, and suddenly they've turned into Akeem and Saba Simba, <laughs> which having said that now I can imagine Chikara will probably book them as two of the three people for King of Creos next time. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they can get Power Uti to be the third. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Uh, some of those allegations can make that a little bit tricky there, you know? <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean, speaking for myself, I used to be a big Chikara fan from like 2010-ish to 2013 when the big shutdown angle happened. And you had guys like Quackenbush and Jigsaw and the Young Bucks and the Osirian Portal and Fist and El Generico and Eddie Kingston and of course Hallowicked and Frightmare. And Hallowicked in particular, he's a guy who I think is just so underrated and he has not gotten the level of attention in wrestling that he should given his talent in the ring. Same with Jigsaw, too. Jigsaw is another guy who I felt deserved a much bigger stage, especially in 2012 when he had those impact matches, and for whatever reason, TNA didn't sign him. Yeah, I remember seeing him. It, one, one other thing that comes out of, that comes to mind with that is you talked about how they had previously, they were using actual licensed, or probably unlicensed in this case, music, but using actual mainstream music. And... I feel like that's something that when I mean, we talked about ECW earlier, I don't think that gets enough credit for how much of a, how much that did for that company to be using actual music. And it makes me wonder, I mean, I'm sure that there's financial reasons involved, but I'd like to, I'd love to see a modern company. I think AEW would have, would be well served to actually pull in some act, some legitimate, mainstream recognizable music i mean 
Can you imagine the Sandman if he didn't have Enter Sandman as his theme song? I can. can WWE. You... <laughs> exactly. And, and, and none of us want to remember that. I mean, all of the iconic people, all the iconic moments in ECW, think of they're scored to really well-selected, well-curated, nor- mainstream, major label music. And I wonder what you think about that. Do you think that companies would be better served to do a little more of that these days? instead of all in-house stuff. Well, I touched on this in the past. I think it would be great for AEW to, you know, get some mainstream songs for guys like, you know, I Hope You Suffer for Jimmy Havoc and uh, Protovision for Joey Janela. Because, yeah, music can really go a long way in helping guys get over, but so can having good matches and and good promos, too. So, yeah, well-known music, well-known songs, they can help a lot for sure. But... I don't think it's necessarily the be-all, end-all for a lot of guys to help get them over. Some guys, absolutely, yes, but a lot of guys, maybe not. I, I feel like with AEW, especially since they're so new and they're trying to appeal to a new audience, anything that can get someone who's cycling through the channels or giving it a try, any sort of hook that you can get that gives you a little more information quickly about somebody, I think would be a good thing for them right now. Eventually, maybe you go fully in-house, like WWE does, but I, I think that just as, as a viewer who's not, I mean, I'm not casual at this point, but I'm definitely not watching everything that's coming out these days. And I know that for me, when I hear a song that I recognize I in any media, I'm more likely to stop for that 5, 10, 15 seconds and see what it is. And especially with something like this, where the right song for somebody can tell you so much about their character that quick. I mean, I I think that's something that I think it could have been, it could be useful for some of the lesser known personalities on the roster. Yeah. That's a very sound point of view. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the final wrestler on this edition of the Halloween spooktacular is going to take us back to TNA, but this guy isn't just known for his time in TNA. He's also known for his time in ECW WCW, WWE, and Ring of Honor. He's a former ECW champion, NWA World Heavyweight Champion, WCW US Champion, and 27-time WWE Hardcore Champion. Of course, I'm talking about Raven. And Raven's theme in TNA is by Dale Oliver off of Third Degree Burns, The Music of TNA Wrestling Volume 1. This is called Scream. So the word that immediately comes to mind when I hear this song is dirty. This is just a dirty song. It's it's guttural. 
It's industrial. The guitar is all grimy and there's weird noises. You got the wolf howling in the background. You've got the guy who's like Tom Waits going Raven. It's just a dirty song. And considering Raven is just a dirty guy in general, I'd say that lines up pretty nicely there, Sean. It's so perfect because, yeah, by, by the 2000s, just looking at Raven, you, you might get some sort of a rash <laughs> or and need to need to use like lava soap to clean yourself off. Also, I love that it follows in the great tradition. I, TNA adopted that WCW tradition of taking actual normal songs and doing the knockoff versions of them. And this one, this is one of their better ones. I, it, it, it always just makes me happy in a nostalgic sort of way to hear that just slightly changed version of something familiar. And Raven, TNA, you have inadvertently gone onto one of my wrestling trip wires. Uh-oh. And I'm, I'm going to try to stay calm about this, but I don't know. There's only, there are two matches in wrestling history that, if you talk about them even now, I just get angry and I've had to be calmed down and take a breath sort of rage. Sting Hogan at Starcade, which is obviously one of the big ones for everybody. But then April 30th, 2003, Raven versus Jeff Jarrett, NWA title. I loved early TNA. I watched it every single week when it was the weekly pay-per-view era. I went back and I found like the weekly writing I would do on places like CRZ's board about how good the show was. And I was so excited for April 30th. It's like, they've built this up so well and they freaking botched it. And they Jeff Jarrett it so hard. that It was the, it was the guitar to the heart of anyone who thought that this might have some sort of a hope to be a better promotion. And turns out that they were really just preparing us for the next 16 years of what they would be. I told you not to book me to lose. <laughs> a slapjack to the soul. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I. it's funny because you, this song uses the Nirvana song as a bass. And yet, as we, I was just talking about, even when it was happening in my head, I would still hear the offspring whenever Raven would come out to the ring. And even now it's like, I associate that instantly with him, even though he, even though he used this song longer probably than he did his entire ECW stint. Yeah, it's obviously a ripoff of Come As You Are by Nirvana, but I like that because it's a nice little bit of continuity there because his theme in WCW was also a ripoff of Come As You Are. Oh my god, that's right. Yeah, and comparing the two, the WCW theme is a pretty straightforward grunge sound.
Steam, though, it's a lot dirtier. It's a lot uglier. It's almost as if the WCW song has decayed over time into this ugly, grimy new song. And Raven, too. I mean, talk about a guy who just morphed over time. He went from being this spoiled rich kid in WCW with the leather jacket and the jean shorts and the flannel to being this just disgusting, scuzzy, dirty-looking gothic scumbag with the black makeup around the eyes and all the tattoos and the piercings. So I like how Raven and his theme kind of match each other and match the decay that the other one has gone through. Exactly. I mean, we, we talked earlier envisioning Brian Pillman in the studio. You, you can imagine like some dude that Raven like met in a back alley somewhere coming in to do the 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 small vocal pieces in this song. It's like, hey, you want to you want to you want to come do some song work? I got a ham sandwich for you. <laughs> and so Scruffy McGee comes wandering in and steals a microphone on the way out because Raven's generally hanging out with people like that at this point, I assume. But yeah, I love that sound like you were saying use the term decay it really did have that just i don't want to say low budget but it felt like everything with tna felt sort of like wcw fallen from grace in a lot of ways at that point so the fact that the music became this less pristine sounding less clean more guttural more disjointed sound just like raven had become just like the entire wrestling industry that wasn't wwe had become everything had fallen on hard times and that change in the music to go from the original original nirvana song to the wcw high-end ripoff to the tna lower quality hanging out in the asylum in Nashville version. It, it really is a, it, it's a hell of a character arc for a song. And I'll say this too. This is my favorite Raven theme of all time. I love it so much. And he's got some good themes too. You know, the WCW theme, uh, the offspring and ECW uh, end of everything is second WWF theme, but I'll always like this one the most because it's a dirty song. Sure. But it's still pretty catchy. And it does have, I guess, this hypnotic feel to it as well. Especially the part where it goes boom, 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 boom. And the, and the percussion has this steady rhythm to it. And it, it draws you in, in a way. Which, again, that was Raven. You know, Raven wasn't a fine, upstanding citizen by any stretch. He was a total scumbag. But there were multiple instances when Raven would get a following. You know, he would draw people to him and be their leader. The Raven's Nest in ECW, the Flock in WCW, the Gathering in Serotonin in TNA. You know, say what you will about Scott Levy, the guy, and his real-life personality flaws, and there are quite a few of them for sure, but there's a reason why the character of Raven kept getting his own stable, because he's a hell of a talker, he's got a ton of charisma, and he's totally believable as this cult of personality for lost souls, like the Raven's Nest and the Flock and whatnot. No, absolutely. Uh, that sort of charisma that he had that no matter, I mean, even as the ver- as the older, sort of more broken down Raven in TNA in Impact, he still had that 
you wanted to know what he's doing. You wanted to be around him as a character. It was very easy to see why people would be drawn to him because there was that, I think you used the term hypnotic and it kind of really was there. It felt like Scott Levy was Raven so much closer than a lot of other type characters. And with Scott Levy, you just, he's interesting. And the music that they, there that they used in TNA for him. It was interesting music. It didn't, there, there was just enough things going on in there that sort of tipped what you expected onto its side that you had to stay listening a little longer. And that character was just tipped on its side enough that it's like, this isn't the Raven that we knew. He's a little different. He's a little older. He's a little less spoiled seeming. I mean, and especially since at this point in time, he was kind of a face. He was essentially a face character, which is always kind of strange for Raven. But he still was using a flock. He was still using his sort of acolytes to protect him. But he was more of a likable cult leader, I guess, at that point. Yeah. And uh, eventually he did win the NWA world title in 05. And I thought it was a pretty cool moment, too. Um, of course, we all know who we dropped the belt to, don't we? And then the kicker is, it wasn't even on TV either. It was on an indie show. Oh yeah, was it, wasn't it in Canada or something? Uh, I'm pretty sure it was a show for Border City Wrestling, which yeah. is Scott DeMore's promotion. And that was also the big AMW heel turn as well, which is kind of weird that they didn't do the belt switch or the heel turn on TV or pay-per-view. But um, yeah, it's, that's TNA for you, I guess, you know? <laughs> if, if they would have just given Raven the belt in April 2003, everything would have been different. <laughs> Jeff Jarrett would be running the biggest wrestling company in the world. It'd be like if Homer had invented the condiment pen. But no, I, you really think that's his best theme song, though? Man. I do, yeah. I could see it being actually the best fit for him. Because, I mean, I love Come Out and Play for him in ECW, but admittedly, it's not... Well, maybe not... best isn't the right word for it. I think favorite is a better word. It's my favorite yeah. Raven theme. Um, I, mean, I mean, I know it's all subjective anyway, but, you know. Yeah. But no, I, I, I could actually see them that this... I mean, this theme probably fits him better than any other theme, I think. This, this feels very much Raven of that time period. I, 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 think, I think in my case, it's the nostalgia factor working there more than anything. It's like... I remember hearing that song and seeing him come out to it. So, of course, for me, it's like, yay, I was young once. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I I love, I did love that this one really felt, it, it was uncomfortable. I like that it was uncomfortable, this song. It just, and, and that really, that's the thing with Raven is he's always been an uncomfortable character. And I think that's kind of why in WWE, he was always so hard to really do anything with because WWE is not good at things being uncomfortable. But getting out of in TNA, he was able to really do that line where it's like, I like him. I don't like him. I'm kind of disturbed by him. He's kind of creepy, but kind of alluring. And and this song really, the song really did did do a good job of that sort of feeling of. St- I'm I'm intrigued, I'm attracted, I'm repulsed all at one time. A good way to sum it up, for sure, for sure. 
All right, well, that was the 2019 Halloween Spooktacular. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you weren't scared too much there. Uh, we tried to lighten the mood as best we could. Uh, Are you dressing up as anything this year for Halloween? No, I will not. I will be uh, Mr. Boring and not dress up there. But uh, what about you? Um, I think I'm going to dress up as Kevin Thorne. Is your wife going to be Ariel? Um, well, she normally dresses like that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Honey, where'd all this blood come from? <laughs> Oh, it's just another Wednesday. Yep, yep. Some tarot cards, a bit of red lighting, and it's just a typical Friday night in the Flynn household. (laughs) (laughs) But thank you again for having me, Andrew. It's always a pleasure to talk wrestling and wrestling music with you. Absolutely. This was just a ton of fun having you on again, Sean. Thank you for being here as always. And uh, any plugs you want to give, go right ahead. Um, I mean, I'm on Twitter at uh, at Spiffy6123. I, every once in a while, I still do pop up on the VOW website from time to time. Uh, if you're a patron, I was on the, I did a bunch of Mania Weekend reviews with Rich over the Mania Weekend last year. Maybe we'll do that again this year coming up. Yeah, and Blackcraft Wrestling, baby. Next big thing. Here we go. <laughs> if, if you ever want to hear what it sounds like when two people have seen something that they're brains just couldn't wrap themselves around our, our review of black craft on mania weekend is it's is, legendary yeah yeah it was it was a fun night <laughs> but yeah otherwise otherwise that's about it listen to voices of wrestling they're good guys and music of the mat is part of the voices of wrestling podcast network you can check them all out at voices of follow the show on twitter at music of the mat follow me on twitter at andrew t rich Go to the VOW Discord at VoicesOfWrestling.com slash Discord uh, to find the Music of the Mat channel where you can talk about the podcast. That's where I'll be posting the YouTube playlist for this episode as well. If you would like to donate to the show, you can do that at VoicesOfWrestling.com slash Donate. Click the big Donate button underneath the name Music of the Mat. It'll take you right where you need to go. And if you do donate, hey, it's very much appreciated. Thank you so much. And of course, finally, rate, review, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and many other places. Uh, Sean, thank you again, and I hope you have a very fun and safe Halloween. Same here, same to you, Andrew, and don't be too scared. (laughs) (laughs) All right, for Sean Flynn, I'm Andrew Rich. A very safe and happy Halloween to all of you out there as well, and I'll see you next time on Music of the Mat. Take care, guys. Music of the Mad is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The songs used throughout this show are property of their respective copyright holders.